Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association based at Wits University, Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast engages with issues about university life relevant to students and staff looking in South Africa, Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular area. My name is Nosipum gomez And I'm Kolega Shangli. And, and we are your hosts. Hi, I'm Belinda Butelezi from UJ, and I think one of the challenges that um, black academics face is that soon after they get their degree, uh, undergraduate or honours, they have to, they're forced to go and find work, um, whereas their privileged counterparts are able to continue all the way up to PhD level um, because of funding from maybe their families and so forth. So yeah, that's one of the challenges they face. Welcome to this week's episode of The Academic Citizen. Today, I am chatting to Professor Tabum Sibi, who is the Dean and Head of School of Education at UKZN. At 34, he is the youngest Dean in the country. Prof Sibi was appointed the Dean and Head of School of Education at UKZN this year. Prof Sibi boasts expertise in curriculum studies with a profound focus on understanding how marginalization, prejudice, and discrimination impact on people's constructions of their own identities and also how people with marginalized identities experience institutions of learning, be it at basic or higher education levels. Through exploring the nature of human sexuality in relation to schooling, Msibi's work more broadly tackles social justice issues in the context of curriculum development and implementation. Welcome to the Academic Citizen, Prof Msibi. Thank you very much, colleague. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to engage you this morning. So you are said to be the youngest dean in South Africa. Like, what does that mean? How does that make you feel? I mean, you're 34 years old, right? Yep. Uh, <laughs> I am indeed 34. Uh, I, I suppose um, it's, it's humbling and also uh, says a lot about the transformation that has happened in this country. Uh, it's, it's a celebration of um, what it means when uh, we speak about the need to transform higher education institutions. I suppose I was very fortunate to come into an institution that took issues of transformation very seriously and ensured to it that uh, they offered opportunities that would broaden my horizon and also that would enable me into becoming an academic uh, who would would publish um, in international and local uh, uh, journals and and so 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 this type of support essentially that I received from UK that uh, has enabled this uh, and I think uh, I'm, I'm very humbled so what what led you into academia? <laughs> you find this very funny because I, I never imagined myself as an academic at all. In ah. fact, um, <laughs> when I was studying, I thought I was going to become a teacher and I would become a school principal and perhaps uh, later on in my life uh, take up a position in the Department of Education. But I never in a way imagined that I would be a scholar. Um, it was only when I got to university and I met, I met my mentor. Uh, his name is uh, Crispin Hempstead, uh, who at the time, head of school of the then University of Natal. And uh, first year when I arrived here, he met me and he told me that I would become an academic. He saw great potential uh, in me and uh, he felt that immediately after, after engaging with me that I would become a scholar. And he put in mechanisms and measures in place to make sure that I, I was supported 
and retained at the university when I when I finished my undergraduate degree and uh, uh, ensured that I got employment uh, so that I could continue with my my honours uh, and and supported me in getting the range of scholarships that I got to study overseas. So you know, essentially, he that's sort of what pushed me into academia. It's not it's not because I dreamt that I would become an academic. It is because circumstances uh, in my life um, enabled me to make connections with people way in academia and of course my involvement in academia as a student uh, made me quite excited about becoming a lecturer and the impact that that would have on sort of prospective teachers because they you know they 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 touch upon thousands and thousands and thousands of lives and so it's it's imperative for us in higher education to ensure that we we really work hard to get fantastic teachers out there mm. And I mean, it sounds like for you to be where you are, you've kind of had to, you know, engage with a network of people. So how important is it to have support from the academy, from outside? I mean, is this something that you can do by yourself or is mentorship important? You know, in academia, I can say without a doubt that you absolutely require mentorship in order for you to survive and to thrive. Academia works a lot on, on, on networks. Um, it's people who have uh, projects who can then introduce you to their projects and the work that they're doing and then you can get exposed uh, into actually doing research, uh, uh, into writing, into presenting in conferences, into making contributions in books. Um, so you have to have somebody who allows you to gain entry into the networks that exist within your area of work. Networks are so entrenched um, in the way in which uh, uh, academia functions, in terms of the cultural practices that exist. People who are new academics, early career academics, would need to be guided uh, in terms of even even you know I remember starting out. You don't even know which journals are appropriate to publish in, right? Um, you know, a lot of, pe- of young people find themselves trapped uh, in, in publishing in predatory journals because they're not actually appropriately mentored to say, you know, you must target journals that are credible, that are going to be read by people, that will result in your work being recognized and cited, having a particular impact factor. All of that is critical. So uh, you need a mentor to, to, to help you with navigating around that. And of course, it's not just academia that, that requires mentorship. I mean, I would say almost all professions would require that you have somebody to assist you to navigate the terrains. And, uh, and, and, and black academics in particular find it difficult because our, our networks are not as established um, as white networks, which uh, have been there for centuries. So it becomes even more harder as an academic to, uh, as a black academic, to, to navigate within that and to, and to be successful. It makes a lot of sense um, when you talk about the accessibility of networks, especially when you're talking about young black academics. And I'm just wondering also, like when we think about um, this issue of access, I mean, who determines what an accredited journal looks like? And, And in the event that you don't have access to these networks, what are the chances of you succeeding? and being um, a dean of department or field, what are the chances of that actually happening if you well, don't have access? In order for you to be to become a dean, you need to have uh, an established track record in generating scholarship, mm-hmm. in, um, sourcing funding, in exhibiting excellence in teaching. All of that is central. So if you do not have uh, opportunities to actually have your work published in platforms that are accredited, 
that are recognized and you focus on, you know, the four paid literature journals, the chances are very slim that you will go in and be and be dean in a reputable institution. Certainly some people have been appointed in senior positions in other institutions uh, with literature journals, but in a university that is serious about uh, academia and, and scholarship and research, um, you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, be taken seriously if you have uh, journals on your CV. Um, so it's critical that young scholars are able to speak to senior, more seasoned scholars to be able to be assisted in understanding where to publish, how to publish. Um, you know, those are sort of the the, the starting uh, sort of basic. Uh, entry points into academia, right? Knowing which journal to publish in, because all journals cater for different things, um, depending on the scholarship. You know, sometimes they they're very specific as to what type of articles they accept. So you would need somebody to help you to navigate, to guide you through that. Um, and without without that, you you'd find it difficult to one day hold a senior position. It's essential because you need to be able to be mentored by people who know what they're doing in order for you to also know what you're going to be doing in the future. So, mm. um, and people who are going to have a frank and honest conversation with you, who are going to be hard uh, with you when you when you do something that uh, you're not supposed to, who are going to tell you when you are, your writing is poor and you know you need to strengthen it in, in particular ways. All of that, without a mentor, it's very difficult because you know it's very difficult to write an article and then to critique the article yourself. Mm-hmm. You need somebody to give you another opinion second opinion on what they think about that. Okay, um, talking back to this idea of mentorship, I'm wondering if you are actively participating and maybe mentoring or supporting young academics that might not necessarily have the access that you've had. I believe it, it is a, you, when, you were read, when you were reading my profile earlier, you spoke about my work being a social justice driven type of work. It mm-hmm. is a moral imperative for academics in South Africa at this particular point in time, when we are actually short of black academics, when the government is saying we need to develop the next generation of academics, it is a moral imperative that we actually give back and we support each other. This notion that when you are successful, you have to push the ladder and not allow anyone else to reach you has to actually be uh, dissipated in many ways because uh, we, we, we can't we can't we can't work uh, in an environment that is selfish as academics. We need to be able to give back. I'm mentoring a number of young academics. Uh, I, I believe, in fact, that it is it is a moral uh, expectation that I do it. It is it is it's, it's integral to being a, a good and functioning academic in South Africa. That you 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 actually give back. In that way, I'm, I publish with some of my uh, students to enable them to to get recognized and to see how the publishing industry works. I've actually attracted a number of uh, my students to come into academia by giving them opportunities to teach and to tutor, so mm-hmm. they get experience and eventually become employed permanently in the university. In the university, I've got a number of them who are now many employed academics who are about to complete their PhDs, uh, who've published multiple articles already, because it's critical, you know, when you, you run a special issue, giving them an opportunity to also publish in that special issue that you are running mm-hmm. is critical. So I, I do it when I'm, you know, when I have uh, special issues, and I've got projects, pulling in young academics to see how the projects work. And now, more especially as dean, I've made the issue of mentorship central to how 
I function as a leader in the in, in, in the institution. So I've worked with colleagues try and develop a mentorship strategy, and we are working on ensuring that younger academics that are early career academics within within the school of education get supported to be able to thrive in conversation also with the range of entities to see how we can even expose some of the young academics to international collaborative networks so get people to go and work for a month or two in the united states so that they can actually be mentored by somebody who's an expert in their field all of that is part of making sure that not only are we interesting more younger like academics into academia, but that we make sure that for the next generation we have people who are fully established and fully able to lead and take leadership, not just in South Africa, because actually I think where we're getting it wrong in South Africa is that a lot of our work impacts only immediately in South Africa. We now need to actually focus our attention internationally. How is our work leading to a broader international engagement, theoretical developments, improvement of lives at a broader international level and of course uh, i'm not saying that uh, our problems are now addressed in south africa and that's why we must uh, focus internationally we must do both address our problems here but at the same time make international contributions and in order for us to do that we need to be able to get our younger academics exposed to international networks so that they are able to make international links and international contributions mm, i like this idea of co-publishing and um, how the production of knowledge is not an individual exercise, but it, it is a collaborative effort. And um, when you talk about publishing, I can't help but think about the issue of language. And so what is your take on the adoption of, you know, indigenous African languages into, into um, higher education curriculum? It is, again, one of those moral imperatives. Um, uh, a number of uh, scholars, and a number of others, uh, have spoken about the need for academia to decolonize. And of course, our students um, across the country have been very loud and very clear on the need for uh, our higher education institutions to engage seriously on the project of decolonization. What that means essentially is a recognition of our history, a validation of our past, and a, a, and, and noting, of course, that we can't be stuck in the past, but we need to actually be progressing forward. In doing that, it means that we have to, our languages, languages that have been for centuries undermined, and languages is that, that in academia, especially, were uh, seen as uh, unimportant for decades in this country, that they actually get given mission. And in fact, what you see, the research suggests that if young people are taught in their mother tongue, that in fact, they are able to understand concepts better, that they're able to actually do better when they're academically when they, are, when they write. Um, and, and then, of course, it, you know, it, when they innovate as well. Uh, it's, mother tongue education is critical. So for me, it is important that higher education institutions, and not just higher education institutions, I must emphasize, because we don't want to get this wrong. We don't want to develop concepts and terms that are only going to be used when somebody gets to higher education. Mm -hmm. If we're going to be making sure that young people are taught in a language that they understand, we need to make sure that there is a, a coherent um, conversation happening between the basic education system and the higher education system. So we need to make sure that at basic education level, we introduce indigenous languages for instruction as well as higher education institutions. So UKSRM has been leading uh, uh, in the country in terms of developing Isi Zulu, for instance, yes. uh, as a language uh, of instruction. 
instruction. I know that uh, there are colleagues uh, at Nelson Mandela University who are in the School of in the Faculty of Education. They're also working on around issues of language and making sure that teachers, both uh, who are uh, mother tongue speakers and non mother tongue speakers, are actually taught indigenous languages. So all of this is an important project. It's an important project for transformation. It's an important project for the recognition, ensuring that the dignity of African people is returned and, and that people feel validated in, in their spaces and they can own higher education institutions and, and that higher education are not just a reflection of a European middle-class society, that they reflect Africa, the essence of Africa, which is where they are currently located here, in, you know, when we talk about South Africa. So it's, it's central. I mean, I don't know I don't know what more I can say, but I, I mean, I'm passionate about ensuring that we, there is this development. And of course, there is resistance because English is seen as a language of success um, by many, but we must, when we develop sort of indigenous languages, we must make sure that we don't disadvantage our uh, our, our citizens, our young people, because we, they are going to be functioning in a global society. So English is not going to be completely uh, sort of undermined in the process. We need to teach indigenous long, uh, languages alongside English so that we make sure that our young people can function both at a local level and also at an international level and they can competently uh, function at those, at those levels. Mm. And I guess, um, again, I'm going to go back to this idea of publishing in reputable journals, right? So how how possible is it for one to theorize in an indigenous African language and still get published in these journals? I mean, are, are these journals open to such? It's difficult. Uh, I won't lie to you, but there are journals at an international level that allow for uh, scholars to publish in their native language and then they do a translation of uh, of those articles, and I know Spanish journals um, that do this. Uh, uh, you know, in China, they've got Chinese journals and, and so forth. So, but but if if you are gunning for sort of impactful work, and this is where the challenge is, English, as I was saying, dominates. It continues to dominate. So it is important that as we develop our African indigenous languages, at the same time, we can function um, and competently so via English, because it is, unfortunately, and this is regrettable, it still informs very much what happens in academia, um, and it is seen as a, a, a global language, uh, in a sense. But if you think about it, the French um, publish in French journals, and, uh, and they write in French, uh, and if they have an, an international contribution they want to make, they uh, sometimes then write in, in English. And one of, one of our, 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 the foremost thinkers, uh, the West, uh, Michel Foucault, never wrote a single, a single uh, book in English. All of his books are in French. I mean, so um, we can change the discourse, but, but it's going to take uh, time before the discourse changes, right? I mean, you know, the people are not going to just easily uh, give away power uh, and say, you know, uh, let's completely uh, disregard English and, and, and focus on indigenous languages alone. But I think I think you, there has to be a conversation at a local level. It is important that we start having our own platforms to write in our indigenous languages at a local level because there's issue, there are issues, certainly many of them, that impact on our, our local understanding of things and our local issues. But at a global level, we must also start uh, insisting that um, our languages 
uh, get recognized uh, uh, for those platforms where there is an opportunity to publish in one's language, uh, indigenous language, certainly one can pursue. And then um, just looking at your research interests, so you look at gender, sexuality, curriculum, critical theory. I mean, again, speaking to this issue of indigenous African languages, I mean, how, how, how does one intellectualize around, you know, gender, sexuality, curriculum, critical theory in, in an indigenous African language? I mean, are you doing that in your work? This is interesting because in terms of writing, so I haven't, I haven't been writing in, 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 in Isisulu, for instance, because uh, I was never actually given the skills to do that, right? Um, uh, most of my high schooling was English and the university setting has been English and so forth. But what I've been doing is pushing back. Um, so, so at a theoretical level, so my work is not centered only on issues of language. I mean, I, language is minimal in terms of how, how, what I do. My, my work broadly is on sort of social justice uh, <laughs> matters. Um, uh, so how I approach issues is to try and ask questions around indigeneity in the context of the work that we do. So what does it mean to be a gay South African living in South Africa now? What, how have we come to understand sexuality from a historical perspective uh, into this present day moment? Is there a need to decolonize how we think of sexuality issues? I mean, one of the most fascinating things I've been engaging on is the, the whole question of uh, uh, Africa being um, perceived to be uh, without uh, queer or uh, gay or uh, same-sex desiring subjects historically. And when you do a process of decolonizing the type of knowledge and that has been passed down, you recognize that, in fact, the whole narrative that is being spewed by homophobes in the lives of Gabi and others who reject same-sex desires in Africa was actually a missionary project. It was it started off as a missionary project to try and create an impression that Africa was uh, uh, was without uh, any same-sex desiring individuals and subjects. Yet, if you do a proper decolonized analysis, you find a thriving same-sex culture in Africa across multiple countries. The Zanda people in Nigeria, in Tanzania, in uh, Uganda, in uh, in South Africa, uh, Zimbabwe, you know, all of that is part of speaking back to uh, this decolonized reality to say we need to start asking questions about how do we come to see ourselves as subjects and what narratives are given about us as African people and how we begin to challenge those narratives in ways that are informed by a rigorous scholarly engagement and scholarly uh, uh, sort of uh, research. Um, so that's what I do. I, I also, I'm also not a, an Africanist in the true sense of being an Africanist. So I'm not, an, I, I don't advocate for Africanist thought, sort of exclusion of other forms of, of knowledge, right? I, I believe that knowledge has to speak to each other. Various knowledges exist in any space and those knowledges are not, uh, they're not, they don't in and, in and of themselves hold the universal truth. They are, you know, they're contextualized. So people's knowledge should actually be recognized for its own value as opposed to for its generalizability across the universe or across multiple contexts. We need to understand knowledge as actually speaking to a contextual reality as opposed to a universal reality. So that is, that is sort of the, the type of of work that I and I, I also problematize sort of serious advocacy projects which are outside of that. So, so uh, my work is about the colonial project that tries to advocate for a knowledge project that is built on fact as opposed to just on, on, on sort of uh, one's uh, thing. So, so you, you can safely say that you are not a pan Africanist. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's what I'm trying to get. You are not a pan-Africanist, and yet you are speaking to issues of um, decolonizing and issues of accessibility and intellectualizing in indigenous African languages. So how would you identify yourself? This is the beauty of me. I'll put it this way. I don't identify. Uh, I, don't, I don't claim a category of any, of any sort. So um, I take human life and knowledge and, and values and even issues of sexuality, even issues of gender, as all fluid and contingent on the moment. Mm. So it's there are multiple realities that exist, and and so I would not want to put myself into a category and say I am this, uh, because I'll say I am this today, but upon further engagement and debating and and, and, and sort of researching and, and 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 pursuing knowledge, I find myself sort of holding a completely different position. So in this particular moment, at this particular moment, given the facts that I have at my disposal, there is no doubt, absolutely no doubt, a need for us to decolonize. You know, that is without any uh, contestation on my part. I mean, and in fact, I, I strongly am an advocate for the decolonization project. But I don't want to say now that I am a Pan-Africanist, that I am, you know, (laughs) uh, that I am this or that. I am a scholar that is interested in a project of social justice and ensuring that everyone feels validated and recognized and that the dignity is accorded to, to each and every individual that comes across. And and in a world in a world where oppression is a real thing, where it's not everyone who feels validated. So you have those that are already validated and that are given a lot of airtime, that are given a lot of space to voice how they're feeling. Their histories have been um, you know, made visible through centuries and centuries. I mean, how do you then um, make sense of the statement that, no, you want to give a voice to everybody? When you say everybody, are you talking about those who have been marginalized or is it also those who've oppressed must uh, be heard as well? I mean, please speak to that. Oh, no. So maybe, maybe, maybe I didn't come through kid. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not an advocate for equal voice. I mean, equal voice cannot exist when uh, when uh, people have had centuries and centuries of advantage, and um, and I have not had that. It's time for my voice to be recognized and to be heard. And perhaps those that have had this advantage have to listen. But what I'm what I'm what I'm advocating for is for us to recognize that conversations happen when we begin to hear one another to listen carefully to what one another is saying. So in the process of decolonization, I'm not expecting that white people should be taking the lead in this. In fact, they should not. In fact, my biggest criticism of this entire decolonization uh, engagement has been that we're seeing more and more white sort of leading the decolonization debate. And I'm asking questions as well. What is this that we're decolonizing if, uh, if the agenda is being set by people actually have been in positions of power, positions of advantage, and have done nothing about trying to to see a new reality for uh, for our people. So I'm not an advocate at all for for uh, 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 equality in that sense. What I'm an advocate is for us to have our knowledge validated, but at the same time to understand that our knowledge exists in a global community, and it is not the sole knowledge that exists. There are multiple other knowledges. Uh, 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 if, uh, if I have a better word, that also exists. And so so we have to be able 
to understand that and to appreciate that. So when we're saying that that's decolonized, we're not saying that in a university space, we only want to be taught African content. We're saying that in a university space, African content has to take center stage alongside other forms of knowledge, including Asian philosophy, if you're in philosophy, for instance, um, and elements of Western philosophy. But it cannot be that our students are taught Plato alone and Socrates alone without engaging with people who are from Africa, scholars of Africa, and content that is African, uh, and taught also by people that are uh, that reflect um, uh, um, their own uh, 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 sort of uh, history. So it's 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 about it's about that. It's about centralizing our knowledge, but at the same time, it's at the same time saying that our knowledge exists alongside other forms of knowledge, and we should not uh, just pursue a project of disregarding other forms of knowledge altogether. And um, I like how you keep speaking about knowledges. So at times. Um, when you speak about, say, for instance, indigenous knowledge systems, um, I'm finding as a young black scholar myself that a lot of actually the knowledge that I'm looking for is not written in books. So I've had to use orality as as a methodology. And so what do you have to say about the role that the oral can play in capturing some of the knowledge that hasn't been reflected, say, in the academy? Oral history is absolutely critical. Work on this decolonization project cannot happen without a recognition of the historical process that led to the annihilation of Africa and Africans. And if we are to get the type of knowledge that we want that reflects the continent, that reflects people's experiences, we know that, for instance, Africans have not necessarily had a history of containing knowledge in texts that are written, but that knowledge has been passed down from one one generation to the next through oral, oral engagements and oral uh, conversations. So oral history as a methodological approach becomes absolutely critical to illuminate some of this knowledge that has been um, uh, not hidden, uh, almost perhaps disregarded, invalidated. Um, so more and more, for instance, in the uh, medical sciences with deeper engagements with the Inyangas uh, mm. um, to see the type of knowledge that they have uh, so as to create new sort of healing medicines. Um, and, and, and you won't get the type of knowledge that you need for the process without actually sort of this oral history uh, engagement because it's not written anyway. So all of that is, you know, even, even sort of in the, in the development of critical theory, you, you, would, it's, you, know, you would need to have conversations with people who have had experiences, who know what it's like uh, to speak about issues of marginalization, to be able to present uh, histories, to actually also to recognize that even some of the things that are written in text are not actually an accurate reflection of the African experience, but may have been a reflection of a missionary project that tried to uh, sort of covert pursue a particular agenda. So through oral histories, you may begin a process of actually shattering some of the myths 
some of the untold stories about people's experiences of sexuality. The example that I was giving you earlier, that you know, that, it, that even if you look at um, historical texts um, uh, in South Africa uh, that looked at uh, the mines and, and, and what was happening in the mines, there was a project of deliberately undermining uh, issues of same-sex desire. Hmm. But if you engage in an oral history project that goes back and tries to understand what was happening at the time, hmm. like some of the more critical scholars have done, like Mark Eprest, you begin to get a, a wonderful sense of how indigeneity enabled for a culture of same-sex love to thrive in, in society, in, in South African society. So, you know, I, I know I've gone along, uh, I've been long-winded in responding to, you, to your question, but it is absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. it is and I mean, I think, you know, this idea that queerness is an African, is part of the missionary uh, uh, project. And I think about um, Credo Mutua, I don't know how much you have read him, but he also starts to disrupt this idea that um, same-sex desire is something that is foreign uh, within an African context and this understanding of the relationship between sex and gender, the way we understand it now is also very much informed by a very Western thing, a Western kind of framework when we think about what it means, say, for instance, to be a woman in the world. So I think about, um, you know, King Shaga's aunt, Princess Mkabai, and how so-called, I mean, if, if I'm going to use kind of like a Western frame of understanding sex and gender, she is a woman biologically born with a vagina and everything, and yet socially she is called Baba, right? So so there is this, there is this assumption that, you know, when you look at, um, you know, knowledges that have been produced within the African continent, somehow, you know, e e e patriarchy, say, for instance, is, is, is something that is inherently African. And yet, when you start to dig, you discover that actually there is so much knowledge that can free us from this kind of binary thinking and that can free us from, you know, discriminating on the basis of of sex and gender so i get quite excited when you start talking about how sexuality is malleable how identity is fluid and i think um you know a friend of mine um from from the university currently known as Rhodes he said in his language so he said in his language there's no such thing as he or she so when you talk about someone you'll talk about a colleague um you'll say colleague colleague did this and this but you won't say you know colleague the the one who is a woman <laughs> did this and yeah, this. So yeah, you almost yeah, have to yeah, ask, like, yeah. you almost have to ask, oh, what gender are they? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So so even mm -hmm. in my language, is Zulu, I don't constantly have to refer to gender. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I, you, you're absolutely right. And so and, and, and that's that's the whole project, actually, of decolonizing sort of the sexuality studies. It's if you, if you do an analysis, and I'm saying across the continent, you find of very explicit uh, ways in which African society uh, tackled issues of gender and, and sexuality in ways that are profound, in ways that did not subscribe to the patriarchal order that we are told that Africans uh, purely advocated. I mean, we've had uh, women taking up chieftaincies 
in various uh, 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 sort of uh, countries in the continent, and and they were not known necessarily as women. At the moment they took up those roles, they assumed sort of masculine performances of gender, and uh, were had wives, uh, uh, you know, mm. uh, and ruled, um, and, and and were respected by their societies. Uh, so it's, it's critical that we do this project because it tells us a completely different story than what has been projected, uh, you know, it, about who we are as a people and about what. And so it is, it is disruptive. It is, it just, it challenges the essence of what we've come to believe about notions of gender and sexuality mm. and, and how we've come to know ourselves as, 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 as Africans. Yeah, Yo, this is such a rich um, conversation and uh, unfortunately we've come to the end of our episode but I just want to say thank you so much for making time to speak about these critical issues and um, yeah, I look forward to seeing your work as you continue taking on these roles um, these critical roles because I think it is important for scholars like myself to see myself reflected in different spheres you know, so thank you so much for for making yourself available and for engaging me on on what you do in the world and how you are thinking differently about sex and sexuality in Africa. Do you have yeah. anything that you'd like to say? <laughs> any last thing maybe to young black scholars out there in the world? Well, I, I, I just want to thank you firstly, colleague, for, for the opportunity to engage with you. It's been a really interesting conversation and I'm, I'm just excited to hear your own thinking around these issues and, and how passionate you are, so uh, it's saying uh, you know we we are we're getting somewhere as a country and and, and we, we we have to work together to get there. To young uh, scholars, particularly black scholars, I, I I want to just say that it is possible. You know, um, the one thing that we must not do is to fall under the pre the, the the pressure of um, creating a narrative that we are disempowered completely. Um, the government. Um, has given us marvelous opportunities to disrupt the academy. And, and of course, uh, when we go into academia, there are institutions that remain um, very much fixed on how they, uh, they, they've done things and they refuse to transform. And those spaces may be difficult for, for us when we come into to try and transform. But we have to push through because it is for the next generation. It's for the benefit of our uh, young children that are coming up that we need to start shaking the spaces up and actually seeing our value uh, and taking charge of our lives in ways that will ensure that this country uh, is a world leader when it comes to the knowledge project. So thank you very much, colleague. Thank you so much. Francis is my name, Francis Amponsa and they recently completed my honours in international relations at the UKZN. I think the major problem facing black Africans in the academic world is their inability to make publications. Now, we only have, like, in the academic world of Africa, we can only talk about some few black people like the Uredu who are almost close to their graves. But does it mean we don't, we can't produce the likes of the Kwesi Redu who are in their 90s and close to 100 years? But we, we can, but the, the, the whole idea is that they don't value what we produce based on what or where we come from. The, the whole thing centers around, you know, judging people by their ethnicity or by their nationality, not what they can offer.
The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of VITS University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at VITS. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Research, scheduling, editing, and production was done by me, Simba Rashe Wondem. Jager Malko created our jingles.